This is what we all instinctively do, Austin. My grandpa used to tell me, we justify ourselves and then we establish the blame. We justify ourselves and then we establish the blame. It was a witticism of my grandpa's that if I heard it once, I heard it a hundred times. A minister and counselor himself, he'd seen this all too many times to be able to deny its evident truth. A human being, he'd seen this all too many times in himself to be able to point fingers at others for doing it. Now this is what we all instinctively do, Austin, he would say to me. We justify ourselves and then we establish the blame. My grandpa died in 2013, yet still these words stay with me. They come to me quite often, in fact, when I listen to people rationalize their own personal transgressions, when I listen to people opine on the state of the world and its many problems, when I go to bed at night and think about the crafty excuses I've made for my own selfish and self-righteous behavior that day. Yes, I think about these words all the time. I can still hear him saying them to me. This is what we all instinctively do, Austin. We justify ourselves, and then we establish the blame. It's such a delicious thing to do, you know, to deflect self-criticism by finding fault with another, to hide from our own weaknesses and shortcomings and insecurities by shining light on those things and others. It feels good. Because not only does it blind us to our own faults, but even better, it makes us feel morally superior on account of someone else's perceived faults. And so it's really a remarkable psychological trick, if you think about it, the way that we are able to justify ourselves and then establish the blame. But it's killing us, you know. It's absolutely killing us. Now, we've always been liable to do this. It is indeed of the very essence of human sinfulness to do this, but Never before have we had the capacity to perform this psychological trick on such a collective scale. In other words, we've always been able to indulge in individual delusions or half-truths in order to defend ourselves and take exception with someone else. But never before have we had the tools to amplify this pathology at the mass rate we do now. And so as partisan rancor becomes further embedded and entrenched in our daily lives, principally on account of technologies that we scarcely even understand, we, even as Christian disciples, rather than see the problem and exercise self-control, 
And rather than demonstrate some intellectual and moral humility, instead we too often find ourselves doubling down, matching heat with heat, ire with ire, malice with malice. Not even considering a point that's uncongenial to our own view of things, not even pausing for a second to consider whether there is in fact some grain of truth in someone else's criticism of us or of our perspective, which there almost always is. But all the while happily and willingly sharing half-truths and embellishments and even blatant lies that vilify others and defend ourselves. And it's delicious. And we love it. And it's killing us. Killing us as human beings. That is daily innervating us rather than enlarging us. And for our purposes this morning, killing any sense of gospel credibility we might otherwise as Christians have. This whataboutism that we daily play, this inclination to look for a similar fault in someone else rather than simply acknowledge our own, this propensity to blame someone else for our own transgressions. She did it first, he did it too. It was her, not me. These are the things my kids say. And yet this is precisely what we sound like. All day, every day. This is the pathological conversation that we are having as adults. And yet we don't even hear how childish we sound. It is pure folly. And we love it. Which leads me to a word about the 16th century scholar Desiderius Erasmus. Often referred to as the hen who laid the egg that Martin Luther hatched, Erasmus was a man who quite early on saw the twin follies of a power-hungry church on one side and an equally power-hungry movement against it on the other. Now, Erasmus had no problem seeing all the corruptions and vainglories and injustices of the Catholic Church, that is, the prevailing religious establishment. Nor did he have any problem seeing the spiteful and mean-spirited and zero-sum tendencies of the burgeoning Protestant movement that was seeking to topple it. From very early on, Erasmus saw both of these problems quite clearly. What Erasmus couldn't see quite clearly was why so few others were able to see it. And so he wrote a book that, upon the advent of the Gutenberg printing press, quickly became one of the very first bestsellers. The book was fittingly called In Praise of Folly. And the gist of the book can be summarized in this single line from it, and I quote, So sweet a thing it is not to be wise that on the contrary men rather pray against anything than against 
folly, meaning we love folly but resent wisdom, meaning we court shallowness and embrace vapidity, meaning we indulge in pleasure but disdain restraint, meaning we embrace a good fiction but recoil at the truth, meaning we justify ourselves in all manner of foolish ways and then establish the blame upon others. Well, history, of course, bore Erasmus out to be absolutely right. Ever-increasing hostilities and overreactions on the part of the Catholic Church led to hundreds of thousands of Protestant deaths in the next century, while ever-increasing hostilities and overreactions on the part of Protestants led to hundreds of thousands of Catholic deaths. Then, once those groups had sufficiently exhausted themselves of hating one another, they then turned inward and began to hate factions within themselves. Protestants hanging and drowning other Protestants of different temperaments and theologies. Catholics banishing and burning other Catholics of insufficient orthodoxy or not enough in-group fidelity. So history bore Erasmus out as having been absolutely right that human folly and self-absorption and disdain for wisdom and compromise and self-control would indeed lead to further and further disaster. History, of course, bore him out as absolutely right. But that doesn't mean that anyone wanted to hear it at the time. For those who stand in praise of folly certainly don't like to hear folly ridiculed. In fact, those who stand in praise of folly think that a way of wisdom and humility and maturity and self-control is, well, foolish. And so, as a recent article about Erasmus in The Economist magazine explains it, and I quote, The cycle of intolerance was matched by a cycle of self-righteousness. Protestants competed with other Protestants and Catholics with their fellow Catholics to see who possessed the purest heart and the fiercest faith. And then listen closely to this. And the test of being a good Christian ceased to be decent behavior. Instead, it became fanaticism. Who could shout the most loudly or persecute heresy the most vigorously? or apply fuel to the flames most enthusiastically. The test of being a good Christian became who can be the most carried away. Which leads me finally to our scripture lesson for today from Luke chapter 4, in which Jesus preaches his first sermon in his hometown synagogue. Having returned to Nazareth with something of a buzz about him, the hometown crowd was eager to hear from this young man whose sudden fame was making them so proud. Yeah, he's from here, they'd been saying. Grew up down the road. I knew him as a boy. Good people, Mary and Joseph. Good people. Solid people. 
So let us watch now as Jesus steps up to the pulpit and reads the words of the scripture to them saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Going on then to read the rest of the Isaiah text about the coming kingdom of God. And then pausing he says, Today these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. And the crowd erupts. They love it. Our boy! Just think the Messiah from right here in Nazareth. How about that? Well, thy kingdom come, they exclaim. And then they stand to file down to the fellowship hall for chicken salad and macaroni casserole. But just before they can leave, Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, having said all of that, think not that we are special, that somehow we have exclusive rights to these kingdom goods because of who we are and because of where we come from. No, 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 no. The goods of God's kingdom are available to all. For remember, he says to them, there were many widows in the time of Elijah when there was a severe famine, but Elijah was sent to a widow in Sidon, a Gentile territory. Or remember, he goes on, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, but none of them were made clean other than Naaman, the Gentile Syrian. So thanks for the props, he essentially finishes and I love y'all too I do but before we get too happy with ourselves let us remember that we are no more special or righteous than anyone else even our perceived enemies well this was a very Erasmus thing for Jesus to say and do here but listen to what the scripture says about it and again I quote when they heard this, all were filled with rage, and they drove him out of the town to a high cliff so that they might hurl him off before he even got any of that casserole. You see it, don't you? That is us in that crowd. Elated when our boy seems to be championing our cause. Awash with pride when he's speaking up for what we love most. And speaking out against those who stand in our way of having it. But then just as quickly incensed by his sudden act of self-criticism. Enraged by his sudden willingness to self-reflect and to highlight our own shortcomings. And even to suggest that there may be virtue in our enemy. If we can't see ourselves in this crowd, dear family, I fear we are not looking closely enough. And this happened to Jesus all throughout the scriptures, you know. He'd enraged the Pharisees and the Sadducees by embracing the unclean and by dining with prostitutes. But then he'd turn around and enrage his own followers by dining with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and by rebuking his disciples for their desire to call down fire from heaven upon their enemies. 
Yes, Sadducees and Pharisees, devotees and disciples, they all found him utterly exasperating for this. For this willingness to listen. For this willingness to embrace. For this willingness to defy the passions of the crowd. For this willingness to exercise maturity and self-control. Forgive them, Father, he ultimately said, despite his own anger and anguish, for they know not what they do. This is the final sermon in an ongoing series on the fruits of the Spirit. And this final fruit, self-control, is perhaps the most difficult fruit of them all. For love is tough but not toward those we find it easy to love. And peace is tough, but not when we're surrounded by those whose company we enjoy. And patience is indeed tough, but only when there's something we are really eager for. But self-control, well, self-control is hard either when we're up or when we're down either when we're happy or when we're sad, either when we're winning or when we're losing, either when we are in the right or when we are in the wrong. Self-control is always hard. For you see, it is of our very nature to whip ourselves into frenzy no matter what the circumstance. Doubling down on whatever prevailing emotion we happen to be experiencing, Lashing out or piling on, depending upon what the circumstance seems to be calling for. Constantly endeavoring to justify ourselves and establish the blame. Which leads me back to my grandpa. I loved that dear man for so many reasons. I miss him so much. But I'm not sure I ever watched a man model self-control the way I watched my grandpa model it. I watched him bury two sons. I watched him thrice battle cancer. I watched him lose his house and 80 years worth of possessions in a fire that was started by someone else's carelessness. I watched him watch his country change mightily from the country he defended as an Air Force colonel in World War II. And I watched him watch the culture change in ways he couldn't understand and that he vehemently disagreed with. And you want to know what I heard him say to me throughout it all? Never a word of hatred or of self-pity, or of malice, or of anger, but instead he would say, O wretched man that I am, who am I, O God, that thou art mindful of me? I close this sermon in this sermon series with this story. In the early 1900s, during a 
period of tension and conflict, not unlike what we are experiencing in the present. The London Times solicited essays from several prominent writers and intellectuals in response to this question. What is wrong with the world today? What is wrong with the world today? Well, one of those prominent writers who received this query was G.K. Chesterton, a much-admired novelist and Christian apologist. And so while a host of others wrote back compellingly about how war or poverty or industrialism or technology was what was wrong with the world today, Chesterton famously wrote back the following essay, which I will read in full, and I quote, Dear sirs, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. What is wrong with the world today? I am. You talk about maturity. You talk about wisdom. You talk about humility. You talk about self-awareness. You talk about self-control. Obviously, Chesterton knew that all of these things and so many others were horrors in the world. Obviously, Chesterton knew that. But he knew that until he owned up to his own complicity in each of these problems, that his cries against them would be but the clanging of a cymbal, but the banging of a gong. This, what Chesterton here displayed, this is what the Apostle Paul calls the foolishness of the gospel. Proving ourselves strong by owning up to our weakness. The foolishness of the gospel. Dear family, in a world riven by anger, and daily torn asunder by factions that brook no compromise and that look with suspicion upon everyone but ourselves, let us stand in praise of this kind of folly. Not in praise of the folly Erasmus satirizes in his famous book and that we see on such ready display in us and around us daily. Let us learn from the lessons of people like Paul and Erasmus, people like Chesterton and my own grandpa. Let us learn from the lesson of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he who wept when he looked upon the brokenness of this world, but he who gave his very life for its salvation. Yes, dear family, let us learn to see ourselves in him rather than in those fanatical crowds who so quickly turned upon him. Amen.